Today on Crossroads in Culture, we are looking at the fifth statement that Jesus made from the cross when he said, I thirst. Now, what is Jesus meaning by this? Is it because he's just physically thirsty? Or is there something even more significant that is being said by Jesus that we need to listen to? How do we find hope in life's darkest moments from this statement? We're going to talk about that today on Crossroads in Culture. Hey guys, thanks for joining me on this episode of Crossroads and Culture, where life, ministry, and culture meet. If you've been following along with me for the last few days, you know that we have been looking at these seven statements that Jesus has made from the cross. We are on the fifth statement. We're going to be discussing that today when Jesus said, I thirst. Now, at face value, you would wonder, well, what significance does this have, these two words? Because the assumption would be, um, that he's saying this because he's physically thirsty. Well, that's probably the case. We're going to talk about that. But but could there be something more? I believe that there is. I believe there's something else that's being um, said and that gives great significance to these words that not only um, gives us hope in life's darkest moments, uh, but gives us some practical things that we can that we can take from this. Uh, and put into practice in our life. Now, the text of this comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19. John records this in his Gospel, um, chapter 19, verse 28 through verse 30, are the verses we're going to read. And if you have your copy of the Scriptures, I'd love for you to open that uh, up and maybe get a notepad. You can write down some thoughts, some notes as God speaks to you um, in the midst of this. Uh, If you're not able to do so, just listen. I'm going to read the text for us. But here's what it says in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning with verse 28 and going through verse 30. John writes this, After this, now after this is after Jesus had said, Behold your mother, um, because Mary was there at the foot of the cross, as well as John, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, the one who was the beloved disciple, he was referred to, referred to himself as that. Um, Jesus was very close to to all of his disciples, but Peter, James, and John were the ones who were like, like his inner circle, so to speak. So you have Mary and uh, John at the cross. There are others who are there at the foot of the cross. And Jesus says to Mary, behold your son, woman, behold your son. And he says to John, behold your mother. So it was after that that Jesus, it says, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, just remember the context of what's going on here. Jesus is in the last moments of his life on the cross. He has already, up to this point, been on the cross for almost six hours. And I know we we can't even imagine the agony and the pain, the anguish that he was going through, all that his body was experiencing because of the beating that he had taken, this scourging that he had endured uh, by the Roman soldiers with the cat of nine tails, um, and and he has experienced incredible blood loss. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments. But all these things that he has endured, these are the last moments on the cross. And If you've ever doubted as to whether or not Jesus' death was part of God's sovereign plan of redemption, this text, even these two words, gives, I believe, full assurance 
that this was not, the crucifixion of Jesus was not merely an act of man, that, that they weren't the ones in control of this. So remember, we talked about again yesterday how when you look at the cross, you could look at it from the perspective of saying, man, there's so much chaos and, 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 and what's taking place and the brutality of this and the sense of what seems like hopelessness because Jesus is being crucified. But looking at it from this side of the cross, on this side of the cross, looking back, we see that it wasn't chaos. God was completely in control. And we see that through not only the death of Jesus, but also the resurrection of Jesus. We, we, we also see that, that Jesus is in control of this too. He willingly laid down his life for us. And so Jesus, in this moment, it says, John records, knowing that all was now finished, he said, referring to Jesus, to fulfill the scripture. So Jesus is doing something here to fulfill the scripture. So when it says knowing what was finished, what's he referring to? Well, knowing all that would be necessary to pay the price for our salvation, that all scripture that had been spoken by the prophets regarding his death was fulfilled. You see, there's not one thing that was prophesied by the prophets concerning his 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 uh, birth and his death and even his resurrection that was not fulfilled. And that gives us a lot of hope, as we're going to look at in just a few moments, that the promise of his coming that has been prophesied, his second coming, if all these other prophecies have been fulfilled, then it stands to reason that that prophecy will be fulfilled as well. And I firmly believe that. As believers in Christ, that should be our hope. We know that that is going to be fulfilled. So as we look at this, Jesus is on the cross. He says, I'm thirsty. And we see in a couple of places in the scriptures, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 23, that Jesus is offered wine that is mixed with, with myrrh, which served as a, a, a doling sedative that was traditionally offered by the women of Jerusalem to those who were, who were sentenced uh, to crucifixion. Now, we see this historically through... Um, writings that were known as the Talmud. There is the Jerusalem Talmud and uh, the Babylonian Talmud as well. And so it is made up of oral teachings and tradition called the Mishnah and also the Gemara. So there's two sections of the Talmud, and the Gemara was just expanded writings or thoughts on these traditions. And it is said historically that these Jewish women, whenever there was a crucifixion or whenever there was a death, that they would go out and they would offer um, those who were being executed wine mixed with myrrh because it would be a dulling sedative. I don't know if you've seen the movie Braveheart, um, but if you have, there's the scene where William Wallace is in the dungeon. He is about to be executed um, because he's been called a traitor and and treason treason against England. Uh, He's like an insurrectionist is is what is being claimed. And so he's held in this dungeon, and the one who would be... um, the, the future queen comes in, um, who and she loves uh, William Wallace, and because she doesn't want to see him suffer, because she knows that he will at this executioner's table, she goes and she offers him something that is a sedative. And if you watch the movie, he puts it in his mouth, he holds it there, after she leaves, he spits it out. Um, and that's probably something similar of what happened here with Jesus, is that this wine mixed with myrrh, which would have been a dulling sedative, um, would have been offered, but the Bible says that that Jesus refused uh, to drink this. 
Then there's also the other statement that's made, that when the wine was offered uh, to Jesus after saying that he thirsted, it was a cheap, sour wine with vinegar that, that was kind of typically the beverage that was uh, consumed by, by just commoners. Um, so it was, it, was a cheap, it was a cheap wine. And in this sense, it says that Jesus received this more than likely to, to wet his lips, because think about as he's being crucified there, breathing uh, heavily as he is uh, extending his body to exhale, because remember, he had to push up to exhale. Um, and so his mouth would have been dry, the sun would be beating down. We'll talk about that as well. And so he, he takes this to moisten uh, his lips. If you've ever been in a situation where you've just been, your mouth has been so dry and thirsty, you need something to wet your lips, something to um, to allow you to kind of um, be able to help the, the parchness of your of your throat. And so this was this this was what was taking place. R. H. Gundry said this. He said the offer of the bitter drink is not an act of mercy, but an act of mockery. And so in this. Uh, of the of this these drinks being offered to Jesus specifically the the sour wine with vinegar that this was a really was a mockery of as though Jesus was a commoner as though Jesus was something less than uh, than who he was so that's what's taking place now so why thirsty well let, let's talk a little bit about that Jesus was thirsty because of the effects of a of a brutal death right the scourging with the cat of nine tails if if you saw the movie the Passion of the Christ it's a very brutal scene where these Roman soldiers, and they were incredibly skilled in, in scourging and also in execution. And these soldiers, there'd be one on either side of the one who would be beaten, um, and it would be determined by the one who was overseeing the scourging as to how many lashes would be given to the, the one who was being whipped and scourged. And so for Jesus, we know it was the full limit, the 39 lashes uh, that he would receive. And in this, these whips, uh, often referred to as the cat of nine tails, it would be like a, a small wooden stock at the end of these leather straps, and in those straps would be sharp objects um, that were meant to, like barbed hooks, that would be meant to dig into the flesh of the one being whipped. It was very excruciating. I can't even imagine watching this, um, and much less experiencing something like this. And so whenever the... Roman soldiers would carry out this whipping the, as they would take this, and the, the, the straps would come across the back. It would wrap around to the, to the actual chest area of the one being um, beaten, and those sharp instruments would rip into the flesh, and as they would pull back the whip, it would rip flesh with that. Um, and you can imagine this blood loss. So in this, there's extreme blood loss that's taking place. By the end of this beating, Jesus more than likely would have experienced hypovolemic shock, and he still had to carry this cross from where he was beaten up to the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull. So there are these deep, open wounds. If you think of it this way, that Jesus encountered every type of wound you can. These contusions, he was bruised, these abrasions, these scrapes, but also puncture wounds from uh, the, the whips, the sharp objects puncturing his skin, the nails puncturing his wrist and his feet, the crown of thorns that would be thrust upon his head that would puncture and embed in his temple area, his forehead area. So there, this was not a clean 
um, execution. This was a bloody execution. So all the bodily fluids that he's losing in this, dehydration that would have set in because, again, of the Middle Eastern sun, it can get very hot even in the months of March and April in Jerusalem. And so you have this dehydration that's setting in. Um, so, so with all that Jesus endured, he was thirsty physically because of this. That's one aspect of it. But there's something more that I think that we, we may not get from this unless we dig a little bit deeper, but we get somewhat of a clue in, in this passage of Scripture. Here's, here's another reason why Jesus made this statement, I thirst. He was fulfilling, Jesus was fulfilling what David had written in the Psalms. Now, again, this makes sense because John records this. He says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. Well, how would he know? Well, it was to fulfill the scriptures of what the prophets had said years and years before this. And so so, so Jesus is fulfilling what, what David had written in the Psalms, specifically regarding thirst and also regarding the drink that was offered to Jesus. In Psalm 69, verse 21, Uh, The psalmist records this, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Now in this psalm, it's a psalm that is recorded and it's written written by David, and this is a psalm when, when he is being pursued by his enemies. And he writes this. Now, this is somewhat symbolic. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. They were treating him as a commoner. This is more, more symbolic, but Jesus would literally fulfill this. Uh, when it records in Matthew that they gave him this wine mixed with gall, gall would be poison or bitterness. And so now you see in Psalm 69 what was a messianic psalm pointing to the reality of what Jesus would experience on the cross, that they offered him this wine mixed with gall. It's what Matthew records in his gospel. And so now we're seeing this be fu- being fulfilled, what was written in Psalm 69. In Psalm 22, another Messianic psalm that I referred to yesterday, I believe it was, Psalm 22, verse 14 through 18, records this. This is what David says, I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, obviously, David didn't have his hands and feet, his hands and feet pierced. But the, so, so in this, once again, David is speaking symbolically here. He's saying, this is what it feels like to me. But Jesus didn't just feel this. He experienced the reality of this. And so you see that all the scripture that prophesied uh, about Jesus's death is now being fulfilled. That's why Jesus is making this statement, I thirst. It was because he would fulfill what David had written in the Psalms. So not only... Jesus Jesus not only breathed the scriptures into existence, but was the Word made flesh, who with this unstoppable tenacity fulfilled every prophecy that pointed to him as the Messiah. I mean, it's really staggering when you think about this, that every prophecy that was spoken of him regarding his death, Jesus fulfilled. Tim Keller said this in one of his books. 
He said, when you pricked Jesus Christ, when you stabbed Jesus Christ, he literally bled Scripture. He knew the Scripture so well. He thought about the Scripture so pervasively. It so saturated and permeated his whole being and his imagination and his feelings and his will and his knowledge that it shaped him instinctively. The Scripture shaped every part of him. His nobility, his courage, his peace, his faith, all happened because he was saturated with Scripture. Again, that's a quote by Tim Keller. Now, there is nothing more affirming of the Scriptures than Jesus' tenacious obedience to the Scriptures and his fulfillment of the Scriptures. So if you've ever wondered why all of Scripture matters, it's because it mattered to Jesus. And so if, you know, I know in our culture today, there, there are some who are trying to take the Word of God and piecemeal it together, taking what they want out of the Word of God that they like, that they, that they want to accept, and the parts that are hard um, either to understand or even that they don't want to follow or obey, um, they have chosen to take out of Scripture and say, well, this is no longer relevant um, to us today. The problem with that is the, that, that God the Son, Jesus Christ, who was the Word made flesh, Jesus himself validates all of Scripture. And so he affirms the Scripture, and we see that by his obedience to the Word of God, to the Scriptures, and the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Listen to what Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19 and verse 21 says. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Jesus was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And as he's reading this, he is speaking the word about himself. He is now the word made flesh is what, God, what John writes in the, his gospel in chapter 1, John chapter 1, that Jesus is the word made flesh and that he dwelt among us or he tabernacled among us. We see that. And so as Jesus is reading from the prophet Isaiah in this unrolled scroll, he says of that text, the scripture, this scripture that I just read to you, this is what Jesus is saying to those who are hearing him. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Why? Because Jesus had the Spirit of the Lord upon him. He was anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. He was, he was sent to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, not physically oppressed as much as those who are spiritually oppressed. And he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. favor. Jesus fulfilled that. So he affirmed what Isaiah wrote. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 53 and 54, Jesus says this, or he asks this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? So Jesus is, again, reiterating and emphasizing that he came to fulfill what had been prophesied about him being the Messiah who would come and redeem us, save us by laying down his life on the cross and then being resurrected on the third day. Let me give you one more, and I could give you several passages of Scripture that of Jesus affirming the Scriptures and fulfilling the prophecies. In the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, verse 12, Jesus asked this question, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? 
In other words, he's saying, go back and look at the prophets, and you're going to see that everything the prophets said point to me. So Jesus affirms. There's nothing more affirming of the scriptures than Jesus' tenacious obedience to the scriptures and his fulfillment of them. So his desire, Jesus' desire to fulfill scripture gives us the assurance that all of his word will be accomplished. That, that should give us hope in life's darkest moments. But also we see that in Jesus' most agonizing moments on the cross, what proceeded from his mouth was what resonated in his heart. Listen to Psalm 119, verse 11. The psalmist writes, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And throughout the ministry of Jesus, Scripture was his sustenance. And it was his defense. I mean, think about the temptation in the wilderness. You find it in Luke chapter 4 or Matthew chapter 4 when Satan came against Jesus to try to trip him up early in his ministry because he knew that if Jesus would stumble in this, if he committed one sin, he would, he would not be able to be the sacrifice for us because the sacrifice that we needed uh, for our sin would have to be a spotless, uh, without blemish, without sin. It had to be a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God, which is why when Jesus went to the cross, he was, he was not only born without sin, he lived a life without sin and was able to be the spotless sacrifice. Now, just a side note, as we talk about um, Easter and Holy Week, we, we think of Passover even. Um, or Seder. Uh, I'm getting to celebrate that with, with my family this week that would typically happen like on a Thursday evening as we remember what Jesus um, did in his Last Supper, uh, having Passover with his disciples. And Passover was just commemorating. It was remembering how God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt when they were in bondage and enslaved. And, and that story was a foreshadowing of not Moses, but a type, that Moses was a type. He would, Moses would point to an even greater deliverer in Jesus Christ who would not deliver us from physical bondage. He would deliver us from spiritual bondage. He would deliver us from, from spiritual death, that, that Jesus would become the Passover lamb. Because in the Passover, in the Old Testament, when this was instituted, which it's not the Jewish feast, it's the Lord's feast. It's his feast, and it commemorates um, what he did in rescuing the children of Israel from Egypt. But it's a story that speaks so much more. Because in the plague of the angel of death that would pass over, that would take the firstborn male, Jesus told, or God told rather, um, his people that they were to take some a hyssop branch, which we just read about that, and they would put the blood of the sacrificed animal uh, of this lamb, and they would put the blood over the doorpost of their homes. And as the angel of death would come, that every home that had the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice, over the doorpost, the angel of death would pass by or pass over that home and would not bring death to the firstborn male. And so they commemorated this. They remembered this, this Passover. And so this lamb that sacrificed before it was sacrificed, it had to be examined by, by the family. It would be brought into the home. And they had to observe to make sure that this lamb, this sacrifice, was didn't have any blemishes, and it pointed to Jesus being our Passover lamb, and that he was without blemish, without spot, he was without sin, and it's his blood over our lives that allows 
death to pass over us that we can experience eternal life. There's so much to this. We even see this in the birth of Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, um, which Bethlehem is, is the word that means house of bread. Um, this Beit Lechem. Beit, house, Lechem is bread. And so he's born in the house of bread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He was born in Bethlehem, which outside of Bethlehem was where they would raise the Paschal lambs or the Passover lambs. How incredibly like God in his story that everything would point to Jesus, that, that we find in Scripture that everything points to and finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so even in this Going back to the wilderness, I kind of got off on a little bit of a tangent there, but but I wanted you to see this, how all of Scripture points to Jesus, how Jesus fulfilled the Scripture, and how much he really did let the Word, the Scriptures, resonate in him. So back to the, the temptation in the wilderness in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, when Satan tempted Jesus so that he would stumble, so that he would not be able to become the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus, with every temptation, with every onslaught that Satan had thrown Jesus' way, Jesus would respond with Scripture. You would hear him say, It is written, it is written, it is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written, it is written. Jesus would go back to the Scriptures because because that's what resonated in his heart. Here's another important thing is that because Jesus had such a high regard for the Scriptures, even more should we. If Jesus had that high of a regard for the Scriptures, all of the Scriptures uh, that we find in the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, um, the Wisdom Writings, um, all of the Old Testament— and all of the New Testament, I realize that the New Testament written, obviously, after the life of Jesus, after he was um, resurrected, that, that these New Testament scriptures began to be written, but they were written about what Christ had done. And in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, uh, we believe, or as followers of Christ, we should believe, because again, this is the Word of God, that it is completely inspired. It has full authority in our life. It is without error. It is profitable for us to learn from it, to be taught by it, and to let it correct our lives, to direct our lives as well. Jesus had such a high regard for the Scriptures, and even more should we. So when he said, I thirst, Jesus is fulfilling the Scriptures because he knew it was not it was he knew it was imperative it was a must that he fulfilled the scriptures but he also had such a high regard for the scriptures as well and we should also now not only was he physically thirsty in this but but it could be that Jesus may have been indicating his longing for his father's presence remember what we just we just came we just came off of here of hearing him say um, my god my god why have you forsaken me he had never experienced uh, being forsaken by the Father. There is always this relationship and community. From the very beginning, he is the uncreated one. So again, in Genesis, the, the Trinity, the doctrine of Trinity, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect community with each other. And then God became flesh in the person of Jesus, and he's fully God, yet fully human, which blows our mind. But now on the cross, because he's bearing the weight of the sin of the world, he doesn't just feel forsaken by his Father. He is, in that moment, forsaken because he is bearing the sin of the world. And God's judgment, his wrath, will be poured out on Jesus. So think about it. Coming through that, 
him saying, I thirst, is not just because he's physically thirsty and not just because he's fulfilling scriptures, but it may also have been because he was indicating his longing for his father's presence. Psalm 42 is a great passage of scripture. As a deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you. Jesus has just voiced with this loud scream the agony of being forsaken by his father. And so the presence that he once experienced was now something that he longed for once again. I mean, imagine, he, he wanted that, and so he thirsts, not just physically, and not just to fulfill the scriptures, but he thirsts for his, his father's presence. I just wonder, as we kind of close this and kind of bring some things that we can take away from this, how thirsty are you for God's presence? How thirsty are you for his presence? Maybe, maybe you, there was a time where you gave your life to Christ and you, you are a follower of his. You, in other words, you, you truly are saved, perhaps. But maybe there's distance that sin has, has put between you and God, and, and you know, you, you can recall a time when you were close to him. And now, for some reason, there's distance. And I'm wondering... How thirsty are you for God's presence? Do you feel the weight of the distance that sin puts between you and God? Here's what I've learned to be true, that the depth of your love will deepen your longing for his presence. That the more time you spend with him, the more you're going to fall in love with him. And the more you fall in love with him, the less you want to wander from his presence. You want to be in his presence. And, and that's a process. It, it's, it, it's part of this, this term sanctification of becoming more like Jesus. But the more time you spend with him, the more, the, the more you fall in love with him and the, and the less you want to wander from his presence. You see, Jesus was an incredible model for us of what it looked like to walk in step with his Father, with, with God the Father. And it's same, the same can be true for us, that in our relationship with God through Jesus, that we can walk with him in relationship with him, Christ's Spirit dwelling in us. But how thirsty are you for God's presence? Here's another question, maybe. is how thirsty are you for God's word? I mean, a longing to know his word. It really does amaze me how many people speak on behalf of God without knowing what God says, without knowing his word. Studies and statistics show us that, that biblical illiteracy, illiteracy is rampant in the church, that, that the reason why so many people are falling for false teaching and why so many people are embracing the ideologies of this world Things like progressive Christianity. I mean, even people saying, well, I really don't know if it's just male and female, that, that really we need to respect and honor other people who feel like that they're not a male or a female, even if biologically they're male or they're female. And it's because they've not looked at God's Word, because God's Word is explicit. God's Word says very clearly He created them male and female. God's Word is very explicit that Jesus Christ is the substitution for us. He, his substitutionary death, the substitutionary atonement that He laid down His life for us so that only through Him that we can have a relationship with God. God's Word is very clear about that. God's Word is very clear about how we live life, how to have a relationship with Him, how we treat others. And, and we never know this if we're not spending time in God's Word. So how thirsty are you for God's Word? Now, I know some would say, well, I just don't understand it. Here's what I can promise you, that if you're a follower of Jesus and his spirit lives in you, which if you are a follower of his, his spirit does live in you, that as you open his word and you ask God, God, would you open my eyes to see the wonder of your word, the truth of your word? I promise you, because you're his, he will show you. But you've got to spend time there. 
And you've got, to, you've got to ask God to show you, to open your eyes to his truth. But do you have a longing to know his word? And then do you have a longing to obey his word? I mean, you can know a lot of stuff. You can have a lot of knowledge in your, in your mind about the scriptures. Uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of people I know who are unbelievers who know a lot about scriptures, but they certainly don't obey it. I mean, even Satan knows um, the word. He knows what the scriptures say, Right? So you can have a knowledge of God's word, but not obey his word. And so the question is, do you have a longing to obey his word? His word, when we not only know it, but we obey it, it brings life. It brings life. So how thirsty are you for God's word? And then the last question I would ask us to consider is, how thirsty are you for God's righteousness? How, how thirsty are you um, for for? living life in a way that makes much of Jesus. How much are you thirsting um, to know God's righteousness and his holiness? Jesus said this in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, if you're trying to find your satisfaction in doing what you want to do and doing things that aren't... Um, reflective of God's character um, and, the, and the very nature and character of Jesus. If you're pursuing all of these things that the world says you need to have in order to be satisfied, you're going to find very quickly that you're not going to be satisfied. And even now, there are many of you who perhaps are listening to this and you're thinking, you know what, there's just this emptiness in me. I feel like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm breathing air, I'm existing, but I'm not really living and Jesus makes it very clear that, that if you hunger and thirst for his righteousness, if you hunger and thirst to become more like Jesus, and the only way we can become more like Jesus is as we read his word and obey his word and let his spirit work in us as we pursue the things of God, only then are you going to be truly satisfied because he is the source of our satisfaction. So as we wrap up this this episode on, the, on this podcast, on this fifth statement, when Jesus said, I thirst, I want you to see, and I hope you have seen, that it's more than just physical thirst, but that Jesus was also fulfilling the scriptures because he valued the scriptures. He affirmed the scriptures. He obeyed the scriptures. Um, and, and so for us, as we see this, it's not just physical thirst and fulfilling scripture, but also it very well could have indicated, and I believe it did, his longing for his Father's presence. I thirst for your presence. So what about you? Um, I hope that this has been, again, encouraging to you, challenging to you. I hope it makes you think about some things. And my hope and prayer is that it will draw you closer to God, that you will say, yeah, you know what? There is distance between God and me right now because of sin, and I need to confess that to him. I need to repent of that. I need to, to say, God, I'm so sorry. I, I don't want to keep living this way, and to turn to him, to turn to his word, and see what he has to say, and pursue righteousness, pursue Christ, because it's only then that you're going to truly be satisfied, and only Jesus can satisfy that thirst and that hunger. So as you've heard this, I hope that you will share this with your friends, share it on your social media posts, um, and, and hopefully it will strike up a conversation that you can talk with them more about Jesus. Well, I pray that you have a great rest of the day, and as we look forward to the last two statements that I'll talk about tomorrow and on Friday. So I look forward to you joining me again on Crossroads in Culture. <laughs>